Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Olivier Higgins. And my name is Krista Lundberg. Today we're speaking with Susan James, Professor of Philosophy at Birkbeck University, London, and Fellow of the British Academy. Since obtaining her doctorate at the University of Cambridge, Professor James has also taught at the University of Connecticut and the University of Cambridge, and has held visiting positions at institutions including Princeton University, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Chicago. Professor James has published widely on topics including feminist philosophy, epistemology, early modern political thought, and Spinoza. Her latest research explores the philosophy of Spinoza and its relation to modern life. Professor James, we are delighted to have you. Welcome to Interventions. Thank you both for inviting me. As usual on this podcast, we would like to begin with a question about your intellectual trajectory, in this case by way of books. Could you tell us about three books that have inspired you? I found this question very difficult to answer because, you know, there are so many books that inspire one and my mind went a bit blurry. Um, thinking about it, I thought perhaps there were three kinds of books that I found enormously inspiring and I could give you an example of each of them. Um, they are roughly philosophical texts and philosophical novels and philosophical biographies. So, philosophical texts. Um, I, I remember particularly the, when I first began to read Foucault and just thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to do this? This kind of richness of philosophical approach, this capacity to come at something backwards and sideways, to bring philosophical and historical issues together in such a really deep way. So Foucault always has been since then and remains one of my great heroes. In the realm of philosophical novels, um, a novel by Siri Hushtweit comes to mind. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's called Blazing World. And she takes the title of this novel from Margaret Cavendish, another of my favorite philosophers. And uh, uh, Blazing World is the title of Cavendish's uh, fictional utopia, which she attaches to a work of natural philosophy. And Hushtweit sort of takes up the problem that Cavendish has with her authorial voice, which is whether she's sort of inside or outside the text, and also takes up the problem of, that she has with being a woman writer of philosophy in the middle of the 17th century, and takes up, therefore, the problem of complicity. So Hushtweit writes a spectacular novel about the problems of a woman artist, a visual artist in this case, in contemporary days in America. Um, I found that also enormously thought-provoking and it continues to resonate, really. And then the third category <clears throat> is philosophical biography, which I think is especially difficult. It's hard not to be sort of philosophically turgid or alternatively too far from the ideas that really make a philosopher astonishing. But someone who I think really brings this off is Peter Brown in his biography of Augustine. Um, I think that's a spectacular book. <laughs> yeah, great, great answer as well. 
Um, so going into sort of the inspirations behind your work and the way you approach it, um, you seem to purposefully straddle a conventional divide between philosophy and intellectual history as we would understand it. Um, some writings, like the content of social explanation, focus on problems or stalemates facing contemporary theorists, whereas others uh, draw insight from setting philosophers and their ideas in historical context. Could you tell us a bit more about your approach to disciplinarity and whether you perceive any necessary distinction between the commitments of philosophers and historians? Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think there's a necessary distinction um, in the sense of a distinction that couldn't be otherwise. I don't think that the distinction between history and philosophy reflects some fundamental ontological feature of the world. I think that the way we distinguish them is the outcome of various historical processes and in that sense it's always socially constructed and of course it's also always fiercely contested. But maybe I could say a little bit more about disciplinarity in general. Um, there are obviously many attractive things about working within a discipline. It's very comfortable to work with people who share your assumptions and your problems, approaches and so on. It's kind of enfolding, if you like, and it makes communication easy. But it can also be constricting. As we all know, the way questions are formulated or the approaches that are taken to them may just seem a bit narrow or out of touch. When philosophers feel constricted in their own part of the discipline, they tend to look elsewhere, don't they? I mean, they look either to some other bit of the discipline itself, of philosophy itself, or if they're a little bit braver or more questing, they look beyond it. I think that one of the risks of doing this is that you're bound to be told you're not really doing philosophy. That's just something you have to put up with. But I also think that the strategy can be truly liberating. It can cast all sorts of new light on philosophical problems. It can change our views about what sorts of questions count as philosophical. So I think that blurring disciplinary boundaries is a particularly fruitful form of, of philosophical critique, we could say. Great. And just as a follow-up question, you've written in 2016 how and I quote, even in its most analytical reaches, philosophy is a historical subject, end quote, which as you can imagine is a very intriguing statement for intellectual historians. And we're just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what went into that thought and how you approach your work. Well, I, I think that philosophy is always a historical subject um, in the sense that what we count as philosophical problems and methods is itself the fruit of a historical tradition in which particular figures are emblematic. So the fact that certain problems were discussed by Socrates qualifies them as essentially philosophical. We just take it for granted that, that when we argue about perception, for example, we are doing philosophy. But we can only do that because we are implicitly relying on this long tradition that, as it were, gives us that authority, I think. Um, so there's one answer. <laughs> Feminism has been an important theme in your work, and your writing has often weighed directly on contemporary debates in feminist philosophy. 
In the chapter you wrote for Beyond Equality and Difference, for instance, you note how liberalism is critiqued for its patriarchal assumptions, an implicit orientation toward male citizenship that offers little grounding for feminist theorizing. Could you discuss how the chapter aimed to work through this perceived tension between liberalism and feminism? <laughs> it's a long time ago, but as far as I remember, the chapter made a rather straightforward point, which was that even when men and women formally possess the same rights, systematic differences in their capacity to exercise their rights can stand in the way of substantive equality. So to take what may sound a rather may be, I hope, a rather old-fashioned example. Women and men are equally entitled to run for office as local councillors say, but if the council meetings are in the evening and if women are expected to be at home to make supper for their spouses and children and so on, then it will often be more difficult for them to attend meetings. Um, I think that liberals who hold negative views of freedom have sometimes struggled with this point. As long as a woman isn't coerced, they've argued, then she's free to exercise her right to be a counsellor and as free as a man. But I still want to say they're leaving something important out in this view because women in these circumstances are systematically disadvantaged in relation to men. Has this tension changed since the publication of Beyond Equality and Difference in 1992? Well, since then, a huge amount of work's been done on this problem. And we have a lot of new ways of articulating different aspects of it. We've got a lot of new words. And I think that that's uh, an important part of the way that we progress in this field, really. Um, so we talk, for example, about the power of the social imaginary and the ways that it constructs disadvantage. And we have a richer analysis of the kinds of freedom that women in the sorts of situation I described might possess or lack. But I do think that forms of disadvantage are still obscured by liberal thinking about rights. And along with many other people, I've tried to write a bit about this. Um, I think that liberalism is probably still too tied to a notion of a right as a formal legal claim and it's still too unwilling to consider what it takes to make rights realisable. I think that once you start to think about this it's very hard not to conclude that the power to exercise a right depends on all sorts of conditions, some of them material, some of them cultural and so on and so on so much so that it becomes a sort of unacceptable shorthand to say that a right is vested in any one individual or for that matter in any group. My right to stand for office, for instance, considered as a realisable claim, is only symbolically mine, I want to say. Um, and once we face the fact that really it's a composite power that emerges out of a very complex set of relationships, we get a much messier problem, a sort of view of rights, and one that threatens a number of liberal assumptions about the nature of rights themselves, about the powers of individuals, about the connection between those two, and so on. This is difficult, makes life very inconvenient, as it were, 
but I think it helps us to grasp the complexity of social advantage and disadvantage. And this is something I think, you know, we need to try to do. So turning now to your more historically oriented work, much of it is focused on the early modern period and the 17th century in particular. Could you tell us what it is about this century that speaks to you? One thing I like is what we might call the interdisciplinarity of philosophy in the 17th century. At this time, philosophy still encompasses what we now would think of as physics, psychology, a good chunk of theology, and so on. So as a philosopher of, 17th century, of the 17th century, you can work on problems that are nowadays allocated to the philosophy of science, to the study of the emotions or whatever, and you can move relatively easily between them. You can be a sort of jack of all trades. I think that 17th century philosophy invites this kind of interdisciplinarity and that it's a very refreshing, I find, uh, antidote to the extreme professionalization of contemporary work. So that's one thing. Um, another thing I like is what we might call the agonism of 17th century philosophers and their whole milieu. They tend to view human beings, I think, as riven in various ways, you know, between mind and body, passion and reason, God and nature, and so on. And they are struggling to overcome or come to terms with or repress or sidestep that kind of internal division. In many cases, they're engaged in a struggle to understand themselves in circumstances where they think your own nature gets in the way of this process. Michael Moriarty, professor of French here, has written wonderfully about this, I think, in his trilogy on early modern French thought. Now, of course, there's something very modern about that, the idea that we're opaque to ourselves and lots of things that people like Spinoza or Malbranche might say resonate with ideas that we find in Marx or Nietzsche or Freud and so on. So in this way, you can feel very much at home in the 17th century, I think. But and then at the same time, it's a very foreign place and it's that combination of being at home and being an alien which I think makes it very attractive. So one, one 17th century thinker who has occupied you especially is Spinoza. Would you tell us about your interest in Spinoza? I, I can't really explain it. Um, I came to work on Spinoza in an entirely sort of uh, administrative way. Um, when I was given a job, I was told that I could have the job on condition that I gave lectures on ethics, <laughs> on the <laughs> ethics, I mean. And I didn't know much about Spinoza and I, I gave some really terrible lectures. But um, he did grab me. I mean, why a particular philosopher grabs one is a very deep and difficult thing to understand, I think. But I certainly find him very interesting to work with, shall we say, interesting to think with. <laughs> in 2012, you published a book on Spinoza's theological political treatise in the context of 17th century Dutch intellectual debates and political struggles. Uh, could you tell us about how this context helps us understand Spinoza's philosophy? Yeah, well, a good way to understand what's going on in a work like the theological political treatise, I think, is to try to understand who Spinoza's talking to, who's he trying to convince, and also who's he trying to rubbish. In this case, 
His answers to these questions are really complicated, I think. He seems to have been an exceptionally receptive philosopher, open to all sorts of traditions, keen to see how they could help him. So, for example, he draws on the Jewish tradition in which he was educated. He draws on the humanist tradition in which he took himself to be educated once he'd been um, expelled from the synagogue. He draws on the Cartesian tradition that he probably learned about at the University of Leiden and so on. So all these aspects of his thought are present. But in the theological and political treatise, I think we need to take of the account of the fact that this work is primarily a contribution to two very specific debates in the Netherlands during his lifetime. And one of these is the conflict about the so-called freedom to philosophize. Should philosophers be free to express their ideas or should they be subject to theological or political control? And the other is a related dispute about whether allowing philosophers to speak freely will damage the state or not. And Spinoza argues that it won't. Um, so in the book you mention, I want to see why Spinoza structures the treatise and presents the particular arguments he does. And I argue that you need to remember that his main and his most powerful opponents are the theologians of the Dutch Reformed Church and their political supporters uh, who are anti-republicans. And I suggest that you can read the book in large part as a challenge to them. That wasn't a especially original idea, but the thought was to try to spell out in a bit more detail how that structures the book. So read this way, I think we can try to see what was at stake for Spinoza. I think that he's really fighting for his philosophical life in this book and for the survival of the Republic. Although, of course, he was doing so in what turned out to be a massively ineffective way. <laughs> <laughs> Could you say more about why this wasn't effective? <laughs> well, maybe I should qualify this. Um, because it's not entirely clear who Spinoza was writing for. On one view, uh, which I think has some plausibility, he's writing for a relatively small group of people who are going to act as the sort of um, vanguard, if you like, for the propagation of his views of the relationship between philosophy and politics and philosophy and theology. But if you think that he was writing for the public in general, and he did publish his book, then what happened? I mean, there was an outcry. It was immediately banned in some places, although bans were not as effective as you might think. Um, and Spinoza was sort of denigrated as a dangerous atheist. So this probably didn't really help very much to achieve his goals. And continuing on your interest uh, in Spinoza, uh, you've suggested in recent articles that Spinoza's understanding of emotions and the imagination uh, have a bearing on contemporary problems. First, the question of how historians of philosophy relate to thinkers of the past, and secondly, uh, how readers of fiction feel for certain literary characters over others. Um, we're curious as to why Spinoza's theorizing seems so potent in this area. And are there other problems to which you think that his uh, theories could be applied? 
Well, I think that when we study the history of philosophy, we're interested in the ideas and lives of people who lived a long time ago and were very different from us. But we also need to have some reason for studying them. And at least for me, past philosophers come alive when they speak in some way to our contemporary predicament, might be our philosophical predicament, our social one or whatever. I think most of the great philosophers do this. That's partly why they are great philosophers. But their capacity to speak to us doesn't seem to have much to do with chronology. You might think here of Lucretius or Augustine or something like that. Now, when I first began to work on Spinoza, I think he was hardly studied in the United Kingdom or America. But if you went to Paris and went to any bookshop, you could find shelves laden with texts of his and with books about him. So you see here how sort of local and particular the interest of a special in, in any one philosopher is. That's changed. I mean, within the last 15 years or so, there's been a flood, which is still growing, of work that uses Spinoza's ideas to address contemporary problems. I think there are some fairly obvious reasons for this. Spinoza theorises our embodiment. He's a sort of advocate of democracy. He has a theory of the imagination, which sits well with our contemporary views about self-deceit and so on. Um, he has what can be read as a naturalist metaphysics and you know we could go on like this. But while some commentators such as uh, Jonathan Israel say have concluded from that that Spinoza, Spinoza is extremely continuous with us, he presents Spinoza as the originator of this sort of movement of secular modernization, the radical enlightenment, which ends up with, you know, the best version of us, as, as Jonathan Israel understands it. Um, other people have been more interested in the way that Spinoza challenges or supplements some of our assumptions. And I think that that's what I find most fascinating about him. You know, within his philosophical system, we can find ways of thinking about philosophical questions that just aren't part of the status quo. Could you give us an example of how Spinoza might challenge uh, our context or our way of understanding things? Well, here's one. Um, I've uh, written a paper about... Um, Spinoza's treatment of our emotional responses to fictional characters. And here, as you know, within analytical philosophy, there's a rather dry sort of debate about why we respond emotionally to fictional characters like Anna Karenina. Um, and it starts from the assumption that rational people are people who keep their emotions in line with their beliefs. And if you do that, and if you believe that Anna Karenina doesn't exist, it then emerges as a problem. Why on earth you should be sad when she commits suicide or whatever? Um, there are lots of ways of responding to this puzzle, obviously, and a big debate about it. But I have tried to suggest that Spinoza might show us something quite specific about what's wrong with it. Um, which is that the puzzle assumes that 
it is rational to keep your emotions in line with your beliefs and that this is what normal people do. Spinoza, I think, rejects that assumption entirely. He thinks most of us don't do that a lot of the time. As he sees it, being able to keep your emotions in line with your best judgments or whatever he would say, your surest affirmations, I stress this point because beliefs are not really one of his categories. Anyway, he thinks that's a really complex achievement. And so understanding the nature of that achievement, he suggests, helps us to understand the complexity of our attitudes to fiction and also why we take such immense pleasure in them. Your book Spinoza and Learning to Live Together will appear this year. Could you tell us about this angle on Spinoza and how the project came about? Well, this book is, has come about gradually. It's a collection of essays, some of them old and some of them already published and some of them new. Um, the theme of the book <clears throat> is the idea that Spinoza is one of those philosophers who thinks that the point of philosophy is learning to live a good life. Uh, it's a tradition you know, beautifully explored by Pierre Hadot and others. But it's a view which tends to be regarded as having its roots in the ancient world and less work perhaps is done on its early modern manifestations, as it were, continuations. Um, so in this book I try to talk about the epistemological view that underpins Spinoza's position, his notion of philosophy as a way of acquiring a sort of understanding that at the same is transformative of your happiness, your joyfulness, as he wants to say, and helps you to live cooperatively together. So because this cooperative element is so central, there's also a very strong political element to the book, and that's the second section, as it were. And then in the third section, I try to sort of look outwards beyond the political community to see what other sorts of community Spinoza might be interested in. Great. Well, we look forward to that. And lastly, could you tell us something about any future projects you have planned after this monograph? I've got a little bit more that I want to do in the same vein. Um, but then I would really like to start something new, which is to try to write about the philosophy of art in the 17th century. Um, if you look at most studies of aesthetics or books about aesthetics, you find that they go from the ancient world more or less in one bound to Kant and Hume. And there's a big gap in the 17th century. But of course, you know, there are, there is a great deal of discussion of art in this period. And so I think it would be wonderful to try to see how it fits together into the general picture uh, that we're more familiar with. Professor James, we want to thank you for the stimulating conversation. Well, thank you both very much for inviting me and uh, for your wonderful questions. And many thanks to everyone who's tuned in. We'll be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. <laughs>